Hello and welcome to this episode of the Trialed and Tested podcast from Evidence-Based Education and the Education Endowment Foundation. My name is Jamie Scott from Evidence-Based Education and in this episode I'm chatting to Ellie and Matt from the EEF to find out more about how they identify projects for evaluation and scale up and to explore the progress of some of those current projects. First of all, Ellie and Matt, please introduce yourselves and what you do for the EEF. Hello, I'm Eleanor Stringer and I'm a Head of Programmes at the EEF. I've been here for about seven years now and I cover a range of work including um, I was involved in the Metacognition and Self-Regulated Learning report which came out earlier this year. Hi, I'm Matt Van Portfleet. I'm also Head of Programmes at EEF. I've been here six years now and I lead EEF's work on early years and parental engagement. Okay, it's actually quite odd for me to be back here at the EEF offices. I have some experience of the process for granting evaluations and the first and last time I was here it was part of the process in bidding for the evaluation of a project I was involved with and I'm getting flashbacks to rather challenging questions about the efficacy of our project and the claims we were making. In fact it was you Ellie that was making us work very hard for the evaluation funding and quite rightly so, do you remember that? I do, I do and I'd like to think that in many ways, lots of things have changed since then, and I think we've improved a lot of what we're doing. But uh, I'd like to think that applicants still think we're quite challenging when they come to us and we do ask difficult questions about their evidence. Yeah, I can vouch for that. It's probably even harder now, I don't know. Um, but this time, it's me asking you and Matt some questions, and so we'll get started now, if that's okay. The EEF's grant funding generates new evidence to secure our understanding of what's most likely to be effective in improving attainment and related outcomes, especially for the most disadvantaged pupils. So Matt, can you tell us what do you look for when considering which projects to fund? Yep, so there are three main things we look for when we're assessing applications. The first is the strength of evidence that applicants have when they come to us. The second is the fit with EEF's mission. So are they clearly focused on disadvantaged children? And the third is scalability. So is it an approach that could be taken to large numbers of schools? And I'd say it's the first of those that applicants find most difficult. Um, lots of good ideas come to us, but in most cases they haven't always been able to generate promising evidence that they're likely to have an impact on pupil outcomes. And it's a really competitive process as well. Every funding round we get at least 100 applications, and in the end we'll probably fund four to five of those. Okay, so having been through the process, to me, there's a bit of a a chicken and egg situation going on here. You feel like you've got a good project, you feel um, that there's some good evidence to support it, and you want to get funding for an evaluation to to prove the efficacy of that Mm -hmm. project. Mm -hmm. So how much evidence do you need Mm -hmm. to get through um, that initial stage? Mm -hmm. So because we're funding large-scale randomised controlled trials in most cases, we're looking for things with which uh, we have quite a high bar the types of things we're looking for and ideally we're looking for programs that have a really solid theory and research behind the principles of their program but have also done some evaluation themselves where they've collected some data on children's outcomes and been able to demonstrate perhaps at a smaller scale that they're having an impact on those kind of outcomes which might be some kind of matched study matched design quasi-experimental design um, or it might be a small scale trial themselves. And Ellie, can you take us through the stages of that pipeline and the scaling up of projects? Yeah. The the projects that the EF funds fall into three broad categories of pilot studies, efficacy trials and effectiveness trials. And what we look for will vary a little bit depending on what stage they're coming in at and what evidence they have coming in. Okay. And what's the difference between the various trial stages? Um, 
if you can talk us through those. Yeah, of course. So pilot studies tend not to be randomised controlled trials. At the pilot level, we're more interested in understanding whether an approach is feasible. Is this something that can be done by schools? And is there any early promise that it's starting to make a difference? We tend to fund these in areas where um, there isn't much evidence, but there might be kind of a lot of interest from schools in uh, developing programmes that address that area. For example, we funded a whole round of uh, work looking at um, how to apply technology in education. And we have a couple of interesting pilot studies coming through there where it was innovative new ideas which didn't have lots and lots of evidence and hadn't been delivered in many schools. And we gave them a bit of money to see what well, can this be done. And then if we get promising evidence from that, we can consider taking it to an efficacy study. Most of our trials are efficacy studies. And these tend to be in kind of 40, 50 upward schools, often more like 100. Um, and the focus here is on getting high quality evidence about whether the approach works or not. And by high quality evidence, we mean both that's both in terms of the quality of the design. So they are mostly well-powered controlled trials. We've got a group of comparison schools that we can look at, but also high quality in terms of the delivery. We don't want to stretch the uh, program too far and make them work with so many schools that they can't uh, get a real grip on what they're doing and the implementation that they're doing in the schools. If we get promising findings from an efficacy study, or if somebody comes to us already working at large scale and with some indicative evidence, that's when we look at effectiveness trials. Effectiveness trials are trying to get at, does this thing work in the real world? So they're often upwards of 100 schools, and the delivery um, might look quite similar to how it did at efficacy level if, if that delivery is scalable. But what's more common is that uh, at efficacy level, you might have uh, one or two or a handful of trainers who've been quite closely involved with, possibly even with writing and developing their programme, who are doing a lot of the training at efficacy trial. When we get to an effectiveness study, we, we want to remove them or at least have, have them step back a bit. Because it's not scalable to rely on a handful of people to train hundreds of schools at the same time. Can you tell me about some of the projects that you've taken from efficacy to effectiveness and what you've learned from those so far? Yep. So we've now had a, about a dozen um, projects which we funded at efficacy level where we got really secure, promising results from the first efficacy trial. And the thing we're then interested in is how can we take that to a larger number of schools and what needs to change in that process? So as Elliot was talking about earlier, often an efficacy trial, someone comes to, a, to us and they're often a very kind of charismatic individual who's developed a, a particular programme, but you need to go beyond that person and think about how can they train a group of trainers so they're less involved in direct delivery. And a lot of what we're thinking about in going from efficacy to effectiveness is how does that delivery model need to change in order that a really excellent project can get to more schools. And I think a lot of the challenges around um, scaling up promising programmes is how do you retain quality whilst you're trying to make something much more scalable, make it go to more types of, um, to, to involve more trainers and get to more schools. So an example of where we did that, and we took something for, from efficacy to effectiveness, um, was changing mindsets project, which was uh, informed by all the evidence on growth mindset from Carol Dweck, which lots of schools get very excited about. We did a trial which tried to replicate a American trial that Dweck was involved in, which was quite a, a, a researchy trial. It had some pupils getting a mindset message from some undergraduates coming in to do small group um, additional work with them. Other pupils within the same class were getting 
addition, the same additional support from similar undergraduates, but without that mindset message. And we saw some promising difference in outcomes for those pupils. It was quite a small trial, so it wasn't very secure of difference, but there was a difference. But in that first trial, we also tried just training teachers in how to um, improve pupils' mindsets. And we didn't see an impact on that, that, those outcomes. When we're taking it at a larger scale, what we're trying to do is merge those two, essentially. We're trying to give the uh, scripted programs which the undergraduates had when working with the pupils in the first trial. We're trying to give something similar that they had to the teachers. So we've got a large trial in, I think, over 100 schools. Um, and the teachers are meant to be working through an eight-week programme where they are uh, introducing and reinforcing the messages of if you do well and do badly, it's not just because of how good and clever you are, it's because of a little bit about how hard you work, but also how you work and, and reiterating those messages of um, mindset being linked to uh, effort and strategy, not just innate ability. We don't have the results yet, um, but that's an example of how when scaling something up, we've had to change what the delivery model is a little bit. But Ellie, uh, are all these trials are they or, or projects, are they coming from academics in sort of sitting in ivory towers who don't understand what the day-to-day -day lived reality is like in schools? That, that's a, a good challenge. And that example I just talked about was led by a university, yes, but one that has a lot of experience of working with schools. Um, but we are particularly interested in ideas developed by schools and groups of schools themselves. And over the past few years, we've tried to encourage applications from schools who are trying to find practical uh, ways of getting evidence-based approaches into the classroom. Um, one example of that might be uh, a group of schools in Lincolnshire, led by St Margaret's and Cairo Teaching School Lights in Lincolnshire. They knew that feedback was important. We all know the evidence about how teacher feedback to pupils is important. We also know that leaving lots of long written comments is pr probably not the most effective way to improve outcomes. And this school in Lincolnshire came up with a way of using, um, I, I can't remember if it was iPads, but tablets to record messages from the teachers whilst documenting and, and scribbling on uh, a worksheet or a problem or a, a bit of pupils' homework, which was really quick and easy for the teacher to do. And it meant that the pupil could review it, hearing what the teacher had to say about their work while seeing what they were, what corrections and suggestions they were making. They'd done this in their school, they did a small trial with a handful of other schools with some promising evidence that they came to us with. And we said, that's, that's really interesting. So now we're testing it ourselves in a group of about 30 schools. And that brings its challenges, because when they previously worked, it was with a handful of schools that they knew really well. To do a scientific, rigorous, randomised control trial, we've had to make them go and work with other schools that they didn't have relationships with. Um, but we're testing it and we're going to see if it makes a difference. Matt, the EEF has granted two trials of the Tutor Trust programme designed to improve maths and English outcomes. Could you say a little about why this programme is being retrialed and what the EEF plans to do next? Absolutely, yeah. Um, the Tutor Trust is really interesting. It's one of um, ES first four launch grants back in 2011. Uh, Tutor Trust is a Manchester-based charity that recruits current undergraduates and recent graduates from universities and, and trains them to be tutors in disadvantaged areas. And it's really interesting because we know there's really good evidence about small group and one-to-one -one tuition, but the problem for schools has been how do you make that affordable? It can be quite expensive. And the Tutor Trust model was about trying to ensure really high quality tuition, but make, bring it at a lower cost. And so we, we funded them originally in, back in 2011, 
um, and we got the results a few years later of a, a match study where we compared schools with tutor trust tutors in them to a group of similar schools that didn't have tutor trust tutors. But the problem with that evaluation was it wasn't as secure, it wasn't as rigorous as we would have liked. It's very difficult, for example, to identify in the control group schools who are the, who are the children who would have been tutored had they had tutor trust support. You know, schools make decisions about who's going to be tutored for a whole range of reasons, not just their academic attainment. And so when you try and match between those types of pupils and another set of pupils in, in, in comparison schools, how do you do that rigorously? So there are, there are several reasons why that match design didn't provide us the, the high quality evidence we wanted. However, we recognised that tutoring and this particular model was really interesting and really promising. So we went back in 2015 and designed a much larger and more rigorous randomised controlled trial where we got 105 schools in Greater Manchester and Leeds and focused on their Year 6 pupils who were getting ready for their Key Stage 2 MathSats. And across all that, those 105 schools, um, the teachers identified the children they thought could most benefit from tutoring. So who, who were struggling in maths and who really needed a bit of help. And crucially, they were identified in exactly the same way across that pool of schools. And then those schools were randomly allocated either to get tutor trust support or not. And that led to a much more rigorous design. And the, the study went really well, and we published the results about two weeks ago, which found that children who were in receipt of tutor trust made an additional three months progress um, compared to the control group students in their maths key stage two results, and with similar results for three school meal children as well. Um, so this is a really kind of promising impact from this study, is a high security trial, and now we're in discussions with the tutor trust about how we can take the approach to more schools. So we're looking at where should they go next. They're now in Manchester, Leeds and Liverpool. We're thinking what additional support do they need to try and get their approach into more schools. Ellie, I'd like to ask you about the Embedding Formative Assessment Project. That's a professional development programme aimed at improving student outcomes through the use of formative assessment practices. Why is the EF funding this project? How does the evidence behind this programme differ from other professional development programmes you've considered? Yeah, so we just published the results from this um, a few weeks ago, actually, so I can talk about that as well. But we funded this project because SSAT had been working with Dylan William to find a way to get the formative assessment research, which um, Dylan William and his colleagues are kind of so so famous for and which is um, so loved by schools, to try and find a way to re make it really useful for teachers and practical for teachers. And so building on Dylan and his colleagues' work, not just on formative assessment and assessment for learning, but also on his understanding of what good professional development looks like. They'd put together this, uh, I think it's essentially an 18 month package where secondary schools group all of their teachers across all subjects and key stages into uh, these teaching learning communities. And they meet up one monthly. And each community is a mix of different subjects and different age groups. And they meet up monthly to run through um, some resources developed by Dylan and Siobhan Leahy, his wife, um, which teaches them about what a uh, good assessment for learning is and gives them lots of ideas and techniques and strategies for how to apply that in the classroom. And the idea is because they're coming back together next month, they're meant to then go away, try them, look at each other in the classroom and talk about them. So in terms of how it's different to other professional development approaches, they've really thoughtfully thought about how to get teachers to actually embed this, thus the name, embedding formative assessment. We still all too often get people coming to us with ideas saying we're going to have a one-off CPD day at the beginning, we're going to give the teachers a pack of things and then we're going to expect them to go off and do that. 
we know that that doesn't work in change in practice. And the results back this up. In the embedding formative assessment trial, we had about 140 secondary schools randomised to either run through this programme or not. And we measured it on GCSE results. So a really hard test on, on real life results that matter for schools. And we saw a, a, a difference. It's a small difference, but we saw a difference, um, a positive impact for those schools who'd run through the embedding formative assessment programme, which we think is really encouraging given how scalable and cost effective the programme is. There's been a bit of criticism of the EF's approach to project evaluation, especially a perceived uh, preference for randomised controlled designs. How do you respond to this criticism? Yeah, I, th- I, I think there's a, it's definitely true that we do have a preference for randomised controlled trials. I think we're trying to fill a gap in education research that's trying to understand as rigorously as possible what impact different programmes and approaches have on pupil outcomes. And we think randomised trials are the best way to do that in terms of impact evaluation. Um, lots of programmes and approaches are being bought by schools, are delivered out there, and, and we think it's really important to test those as rigorously as possible. And the, the discipline of have, identifying a group of schools, randomly allocating them so they're as similar as possible between the two different groups, you're controlling for as many of the variables as you possibly can, um, gives you the best possible way of inferring causality about the programme and its impacts. So we, I think we very strongly defend that as an approach. Um, having said that, that doesn't mean that they're the only thing that's important in education research and alongside every randomised trial we fund, we, there's a detailed uh, process evaluation which is much more qualitative and tries to understand if the impact evaluation is answering the question, does this work or not, the process evaluation is trying to understand how does it work, what are um, the barri- barriers to delivery, what are the conditions that make this work or not in different situations and that's a much sort of richer picture of trying to understand exactly what's going on in schools so it's not all about RCTs and I think we'd also say that there are certain types of research questions that are really difficult to try and answer with randomised trials so there have been a few studies that we've done for example about um, ability grouping in schools for example where um, we try to introduce some sort of best practice ways of doing a grouping students that was actually a really difficult study to do as a randomised trial because um, schools struggled to make those types of changes and even though they were interested in, in the project, you know, due to their timetabling, the idea of moving teachers around to be linked to particular classes, in practice that was a really difficult to study to try and randomly assign schools to. Um, or later start times for example. There are, there are certain types of questions about the way schools set up their day or, um, or their, their kind of school environment that make it difficult to do random assignment. And I think increasingly we'll, although we'll continue doing RCTs, think about other types of evaluation. So um, matched studies, more observational type studies that try to answer some of those school level um, questions. Um, so yeah, I think we'll continue doing RCTs, but there's more beyond that. Another example of where it might be more appropriate to use matched studies is where it's just yeah almost impossible. Another example of where it's almost impossible to do randomised trials is um, where you've got groups of schools needing to work together being inherent to the, the delivery of the programme. So we're doing an evaluation of school partnership programme, which is run by the Education Development Trust, which is uh, built around the idea of a cluster of schools, normally about five or six schools, working together, doing peer reviews of each other, and then supporting each other through school improvement. If we were to try and do a randomised trial of that, or if, to do any trial of that, we would need hundreds of clusters in the intervention group and hundreds of clusters in the control group. That's very difficult to recruit to a randomised trial for. So instead, we are 
we, we've got an intervention group, which School Partnership Programme have recruited, of over 400 schools that they are working with. And then we are matching those to statistically similar um, bunch of schools who don't even know that they're part of the comparison group. And that's led by UCL. But that's a rare example of where it's just almost impossible to do it as an RCT. So going back to some of the criticism of RCTs, I suppose one of the big disappointments for schools uh, that are volunteering to be part of these trials is that they don't get to get the intervention. So how do you console those schools? What message do you have? Well, I think the reason we're testing these things is we don't know that they definitely work and that they're definitely beneficial. And so it makes sense to test something before guaranteeing it to every school. Um, some of the things we, we fund might be no better than what schools are doing already. And do we really want to tell all those schools to go and do that thing if it's not better? So I think um, although the, 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 I can understand why schools might want to get the, the programme that looks exciting and new, um, actually they're probably better off waiting for the results of the trial, having really good evidence and then totally committing to it, um, rather than being um, having to get guaranteed something that we're not, we're not certain of. Um, in, in other types of studies, once we have more evidence, you can design the trial so that the, the, the control schools do get something later. So there's a waitlist design where you, you give um, a programme to the intervention schools first, and then a year or two later, the control schools might get something. And we might do that where the evidence is better, that we know um, the control schools will benefit from it. But our preference is, is, is not to do that. So sometimes the EF trials find results that conflict with previously published findings. For instance, the evaluations of the lesson study programme or the Durham Shared Maths programme, which concluded that there was no impact of these interventions on attainment. Do these findings point to some sort of problems in replication in education? And how should teachers and school leaders interested in implementing lesson study or peer tutoring programmes such as these, how should they interpret the EF's published findings in the context of their own school? Yeah, uh, that's a really interesting question. I, I mean, I don't see the results of these types of trials as exemplifying a kind of replication crisis that's being talked about in psychology, for example, where you're seeing lots of lab -based, famous lab-based studies um, with positive effects that, that people are struggling to reproduce those effects under very tightly controlled conditions. Um, I think... We are seeing different results sometimes to what is in the wider literature, but that's often because we're changing something about the context, for example, in when we're testing it. So there are lots of programmes that EF has taken on that were developed internationally, particularly in the States, where lots of trials have been done. And the question is, if they look promising, but when you adapt them and try and introduce them in the UK, do you see similar promising results? And I think the results that we've found of are more mixed. Um, and just demonstrate the difficulties of, of translating something from one context to another. Speaking about something like lesson study, which is obviously very widely used in Japan in particular and in a lot of um, Asian countries, um, there, are, there is a, a large body of literature suggesting that it's um, a beneficial way of supporting teachers in their professional development. Um, there's lots of um, theory and research supporting it as an approach, but actually, as far as I'm aware, there hasn't been um, a large randomised control trial of lesson study before we did um, the study that was published recently. Um, so it's not that it was conflicting or, or um, disagreeing with what's been published before. Um, it's, as far as I know, the first large-scale trial that has tested the impact of lesson study on pupil outcomes um, using a, a rigorous design. So I don't think it's, it's conflicting necessarily. It's just demonstrating that it's 
um, it's very hard to see change on, on children's outcomes from, from a fresh development programme like that. Um, and, it, and it's demonstrating that when delivered this way with this group of schools, they struggle to find an effect on this set of outcomes, um, which is very, very particular. And it doesn't mean that the programme has no benefit. You know, lots of teachers liked the lesson study approach, for example, but it was just shown when you test it against these outcomes, it was a, a tough test and we did not see impact on, on the outcomes we were looking at. Okay, so we're coming towards the end of the podcast now and getting um, slightly philosophical, perhaps. Uh, I'd like to ask, how has the work the EF uh, has done since its inception improved the scientific endeavour of evaluation? What have we learnt about evaluation that we didn't know in 2010, the year before the EF was established? makes us sound very worthy improving the scientific endeavor but but yeah I I feel like we have I feel like we've learned a lot and we've demonstrated a lot we've demonstrated a lot about what is possible and I'd also like to think that we've set high standards we've been very open and transparent about how we do things if you go and look at any of our evaluation reports it's really clear whether we found what we set out to find we make really clear whether the results are as secure as um we, we would hope, which we think lots of other um, evaluators and funders don't necessarily do. I think we've learned a lot and have hopefully given a lot to the sector. Absolutely. I think um, you know, when, when EF was getting set up, there were hardly any randomised trials in, in English education. And I think now we've certainly funded over 100, um, which is, I think, 10% of all the RCTs in education that have been funded worldwide. Um, so I think we've demonstrated that RCTs are possible in schools and that schools welcome them and want to get involved in them. And I think, as Ellie says, um, a lot of what we've been trying to do is to try and develop some kind of common shared standards across the evaluations that we do so that they're as comparable as possible, that they have as much trust with the school community as possible, which is about being totally transparent, about having independent evaluation first, and then being totally transparent about what the things are we're going to measure before we start doing any evaluation, um, having published analysis plans, and then publishing absolutely everything that we fund. Um, so there's no sort of hiding the difficult or disappointing results that, you know, are you know, are bad news for some people. But um, being totally committed to those things, I think, has um, tried to improve the the quality of educational evidence out there. Well, and following on from that, the EF's endowment is for 15 years, so we're about halfway through this lifespan. What do you hope is going to be the lasting impact of EEF project evaluations? And how will the schools of 2026 differ from those of 2011? Well, hopefully there'll be a lot more evidence available for them. You know, as Matt said, before we started doing this, there weren't many um, recent high-quality trials available in the English education system. Um, And we've already published uh, about 40, and we've got many more underway that will be published over the next few years, and we hope that lots of this will generate really useful evidence so so that those schools can be as evidence-informed as possible. Yeah, and I think it's also about um, supporting schools to use evidence as well and to support the kind of culture of evidence use in the in the system. Um, so that goes back to the example we were talking about earlier of, of schools generating promising ideas and coming to us and and then um, evaluating those and, and helping them go to more schools. So, um, so in, encouraging a, a kind of culture of evidence use in, in the way programmes are developed. Um, and also, I suppose, schools being more aware of um, evidence in the decisions they make around buying different programs for example are they are they pushing back on a someone who's trying to sell them something and say hang on a minute where's your evidence for that i think we're ideally trying to contribute to a a culture that is more questioning and and draws on evidence in its decision making yeah i completely agree with everything matt's just said and i've just realized that i said 40 published trials and actually it's more like 
80 or 90. We've got lots more coming out in the next year for people to look out for. Okay, last question now. The findings of all EEF projects, they feed back into the very famous toolkit. And I've heard some people ask why certain approaches or strategies aren't covered in the toolkit, despite there being strong evidence behind them. And so I want to ask, why is that? For example, memory and cognitive load theory, that isn't a topic in the toolkit. Um, why not? Yes, yeah, so that's, that's true, and we can talk a bit about that. But firstly, your projects do feed into the toolkit. And for me, that's really exciting. It proves how live the toolkit is, because it does respond to the results that the EEF generates. Um, and a really good example of that is when we initially launched the toolkit, it had, we had a zero months progress um, estimate, I think, for the teaching assistance strand. Um, based on uh, work by people like Rob Webster and, and Peter Blatchford, mostly. Um, but since then, that, that finding upset a lot of people. I mean, it was one that we required a lot of explanation around this as an average impact and um, other impacts might be more positive or negative. But we've since then funded a number of studies showing that if teaching assistants are highly trained in structured programmes, they can make a really positive impact to people outcomes. And we've actually shifted that estimate of um, teaching assistant impact up to, I think it's one month now. And, and as for sort of the strands in the toolkit and what's, um, what might be added in the future, um, I, I think the, the, the toolkit topics are driven by the things we um, perceive to be most of interest and relevance to schools and to policy. Um, but we'd be totally open if there is a strong demand um, for a particular strand on a particular topic to consider that in terms of future additions to the toolkit. I think some of some of what the evidence on memory, for example, is probably already incorporated in the strands, for example, on um, metacognition and self-regulated learning. But the, but you're right that there probably doesn't include um, other types of evidence um, on cognitive load theory, for example. Um, so I think we'd be open to conversations in the future about what the what the biggest priorities are for schools in terms of evidence and what can be incorporated. So is that a challenge to people if they've got a program that they think that specifically on memory and cognitive load that they want to submit for evaluation then? We would certainly be interested in, in so I guess there are the two things that there's the evaluations that we fund and people are certainly free to bring us their ideas on, on memory cognitive load theory and others we'd be really interested to see those and um, and potentially evaluate those in future and then there's the question of the sort of synthesis which goes into the toolkit and which is a bit separate um, but which we where we'd also again consider topics in the future um, about what's what are priorities for being added and is it worth saying that the the toolkit isn't the be all and end all of how EF's evidence and how we talk to schools? So as well as our projects and the toolkit, we have our guidance reports. And if you take a look at some of our recent guidance reports on things like science teaching or metacognition, they do talk about things um, like kind of memory and um, some more, some more of that cognitive science literature does make, does make it into those guidance reports. Thank you, Ellie, and thank you, Matt, for answering those questions. And giving us an understanding of how evaluation works at the EEF. That's it for this episode of the podcast. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you've enjoyed it. If you have, please, can you take the time to leave a review? It helps other people to discover the podcast and we'd love to hear your feedback. <laughs>